Well, our scripture reading for this morning, for the morning sermon, is continuing on in Galatians 5. This morning we are going to be looking at verses 16 through 18 on mortifying sin in step with the Spirit. But for context, we're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. Remember, as I mentioned last time at the beginning of the month, uh, chapter 5 is now the practical portion of the book of Galatians. Um, It's really a a transitionary chapter. The the doctrinal portion of the book is chapters 1 through 4, where Paul has been refuting the error of the Judaizers, a, a a group of legalists whom we considered last time. And so again, Paul now is transitioning to his practical exhortations. And as as Paul transitions here to these practical exhortations, uh, as we saw last time, he he shined the light on really two dangers in the Christian life. Uh, The danger of, again, legalism and neonomianism, and the danger of antinomianism, or a lifestyle of licentiousness and looseness. And so Paul refuted, by implication, both of those errors as he was once again defending justification by faith alone as not just an event, but again as an ongoing reality that we live in light of. And so now here in verse 16, we're going to take a look at 16 through 18 this morning. Uh, he is now transitioning to look further at the doctrine of sanctification, which follows from justification. So again, for context, we will pick it up at verse 1. Hear now the word of our God. Paul writes and says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And then our text for this morning and our text for this evening. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you before, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Thus far for the reading of God's holy and inspired Word. May He bless it to us. Well, as we now continue to examine the practical section of Paul's letter to the Galatians this morning, what we are considering here is a concept that is often neglected in the modern church. The concept of the mortification of sin. Uh, This is a subject that our forefathers in the faith spent a lot of time thinking about and and putting into practice in their lives. Of course, uh, John Owen, uh, the famous Puritan, wrote a book entitled The Mortification of Sin. You see, while we might neglect it, our, our forefathers recognized that the Christian life is not simply about enjoying justification by faith alone, uh, though justification or the reality that that we are forgiven and right with God uh, based upon uh, the the finished work of Christ, uh, that is indeed a precious truth and one that we should relish in and live in light of. But you see, they, they also understood that we are to live a life of active sanctification through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is how the redemption that we have in Christ really comes down to us in the nitty-gritty of our daily lives through sanctification. We are to be mortifying sin in step with the Spirit. And as we will see this morning... Paul teaches us uh, this very thing here in the middle of Galatians chapter 5. He teaches us here uh, that if we are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, then we must also walk in step with the Holy Spirit of God while mortifying the works and deeds of the flesh. Again, this is how we are to live now that we've been implanted into Christ as we considered at the beginning of the month. And so as we examine this subject of mortifying sin in step with the Spirit this morning, uh, we're going to consider three things. Uh, First, we are going to consider regeneration. Specifically, regeneration and the conflict that regeneration evokes between the spirit and the flesh. Uh, Then second, we will consider the victory of the spirit over the flesh in this conflict. And then finally, third, we will consider uh, the necessity of actively mortifying the flesh in order to grow in our sanctification and in order to grow in the Christian life. So those three things are what we're going to look at. And so first then, we're going to look at and consider regeneration and the conflict that results from it between the spirit and the flesh. There in verses 16 and going into verse 17, Paul says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So, Paul says here and tells us uh, that we must walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh because these two are in conflict with one another, as he said there at the beginning of verse 17. Uh, The sense here is that the Spirit and the flesh are sort of like uh, oil and water. Uh, They just don't mix well together. In fact, uh, he says that they are actively opposed to one another. Boys and girls and adults as well. Maybe uh, you've done that experiment with your schooling before uh, where you take some form of oil 
maybe you take some olive oil or some vegetable oil, then you dump it into a container of water. Uh, what happens when you do that? Uh, well, initially, you'll, you'll see that the oil and the water will, will sort of commingle together, but they won't really mix together. Uh, you'll notice that the oil will begin to sort of glob together, uh, and then that will continue to happen until all the oil rises to the surface, so that you end up with this homogeneous layer of oil uh, sitting on top of the water. And again, just science lesson here, the reason why this happens is because uh, water is what's called a polar molecule. It has a positive and a, a negative end, sort of like a battery, uh, whereas oil is nonpolar. So it doesn't fit between the positive and negative charge of, again, the water. It can't dissolve and mix between the H2O molecules. And so, in a sense, the, the oil and the water uh, almost magnetically push away from each other and dominate two sides of the container. And again, Paul says uh, that a similar sort of conflict exists within us between the spirit and the flesh. The spirit and the flesh uh, do not cohere with one another. Uh, so what then is this bad mixture that he's talking about here referring to? What is the spirit and what is the flesh? Well, when it comes to the spirit, this isn't a reference to our spirit or to our souls. It's actually a reference primarily to the Holy Spirit. And this is how Paul has consistently used the term throughout the book of Galatians. For example, go back just to verse 5 in chapter 5. There, there Paul wrote saying, For we through the Spirit, you'll notice it's capitalized there, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So this was again said in reference to our life of faith in Christ. In fact, the word Christ means what? Anointed one, or the one who is anointed with the Holy Spirit. So Paul says that those who are in Christ by faith, he says that they are also filled with the Holy Spirit, who has anointed Christ himself, and through that same Holy Spirit given faith, uh, they are eagerly awaiting the hope of eternity, as we've been considering recently in Romans chapter 5. So the Spirit there is the Holy Spirit as the author of our faith. So also in uh, the previous chapter, actually, if you look back just a few more verses, which was the conclusion of Paul's doctrinal argument in, of the book, he referred to believers as being those who are born of the Spirit and thus in conflict with the children of the flesh. Look at verses 28 through 30 of chapter 4 with me. He says, Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise, but as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. And that's very similar to our text this morning, isn't it? Just as there is this internal conflict between the spirit and the flesh, uh, so Paul says likewise, those who are born again according to the spirit are in conflict with the children of the flesh. They are in conflict with those who remain in their fallen condition. So the Spirit here in verses 16 and 17 is a reference to the Holy Spirit, to the very one who regenerates us and who dwells within us. At the appointed time, when God ordains to convert us to Christ, the Holy Spirit enters into us and places a new disposition within us so that we come to both trust in the gospel, but also to desire a life of holiness. And like with uh, the children of the flesh from the previous chapter, Paul says here that this new disposition that enters into us, 
then puts us in conflict with our very own flesh. Again, to return to the water and oil analogy, there is a conflict of polarity between the spirit and the flesh. They simply do not mix together. So that's the the spirit. It's the Holy Spirit as he indwells us in the life of faith. What then is the flesh? Well, as we considered last time, the flesh is not simply a reference to our physical body. Again, this is our our knee-jerk interpretation because of how we tend to use that word in our culture. We we tend to use the word flesh uh, primarily as a reference to our skin or, or to the skin of a creature and for everything that's underneath our skin. And because of the influence of things like Greek philosophy and uh, medieval monasticism in Western culture, we tend to think of the flesh or our physical nature as being the sole source of all of our woes. Uh, We tend to think of of the soul or of the spirit as being uh, somehow more pure than the body. Uh, We tend to view the, the soul or the spirit as even being the source of purity, whereas again, that the body is seen as being something that's impure and even unspiritual. In fact, we even see a, a twisted version of this thinking in our culture right now with the whole trans movement, where the feelings and the identity of the soul are valued over that of the body so that the body can be altered to conform to the desires of the soul. You see, how people feel internally is valued over what they are in the flesh so that their flesh can be chopped up and and altered to conform to uh, the desires of their soul. Uh, So that, again, thinking is prevalent in our culture. Or even think about it funerals. Uh, People will say things to comfort one another, like, that's not grandpa in the casket there. That's just his shell. That's not true. The body is part of who grandpa is and was, which is why there needs to be a resurrection. The body is not a cocoon that we need to move on from and be released from. And so for for various reasons, when Paul speaks of the flesh, we can tend to think that this is a mere denigration of the body. But you see in Scripture... Uh, The flesh is, yes, a reference to the body at times, uh, but specifically, it's a reference to the body as a representation of fallen human nature. Those who are in the flesh are disconnected from the life of God. Uh, They depend upon their own resources rather than depending upon God. And they are turned inward in on themselves And they live out of a sense of autonomy. And you see, from this fleshly fallen state comes all of their unbelief and all of their idolatry and and their various manifestations of sin. As John Owen writes in The Mortification of Sin, he says, the body then refers to that corruption and depravity of our natures whereof the body in a great part is the seat and instrument, the very members of the body being made servants unto unrighteousness thereby. It, that is the the word flesh, may express the whole person considered as corrupted and the seat of lusts and distempered affections. And so, in short, flesh is a shorthand reference to fallen human nature. This is what we were before we were born again according to the Spirit. We were disconnected from the life of God, living out of our own resources and out of a sense of autonomy, and our bodies were used as the instruments of unrighteousness. We were simply flesh. However, when the Spirit of God regenerated us, again, a new disposition was placed within us, giving us faith and a desire for obedience, which then entered into conflict with the flesh, with the fallen nature. To return again to our previous analogy, when the oil 
of the Holy Spirit of God was poured upon us, rather than eliminating the flesh, the Spirit immediately began His warfare against it. This is what Paul describes at the end of verse 17. Uh, He writes there in verse 17 saying, For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. So that there describes a state of total warfare. In the word lust that Paul uses there, where he writes that the flesh lusts against the spirit. Uh, This is a reference to strongly desiring what someone else has. Uh, So of course that that fits with the concept of lust, but uh, it could also fit with vices like envy and coveting. We could say that the flesh covets or envies the Spirit, is another way that we could understand that phraseology there. In other words, the flesh being opposed to God wants to overthrow the Spirit's presence within us and to thus re-exert the dominance and autonomy that it previously had. The flesh lusts against the Spirit's new position of prominence within us due to regeneration. You see, just like how Ishmael mocked and persecuted Isaac, as Paul alluded to in the previous chapter, and just like how fallen men persecuted and then crucified Christ when He came into the world, so our very own flesh seeks to wage war against the Spirit of Christ when He enters into us. And so, while we are infallibly redeemed by Christ... And while Christ establishes a solid beachhead within us by His Spirit, this reality creates an inner conflict within us that we have to fight our whole life long until we are separated from the flesh at the moment of our death. And again, while we will certainly have the victory in this conflict if we are in Christ, as Paul says there at the end of verse 17, because of this conflict, you do not do the things that you wish. In other words, this conflict runs interference against you. Now, in understanding what this means more fully, notice that this is similar to what Paul says in Romans chapter 7 and verses 15 through 20, if you want to turn there with me. Um, Romans chapter 7, and again, Verses 15 through 20. There, Paul is writing to the Romans, dealing with a similar controversy with the Judaizers. And he's, again, giving some practical theological instruction here. And he describes the Christian experience. Verse 15. He says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And dear believer, doesn't this exactly describe your experience as a Christian? Uh, That when you uh, desire to do good, that your flesh is right there, ready to resist that impulse. But so also, on the other side, uh, when you backslide and give in to the flesh, don't you find that the Spirit won't let you just go off and have your fun? No, through His power that's at work within you, and through His providential hindrances. Remember, there's nowhere we can flee from Him. Through His providential hindrances... He keeps you from falling away 
and from indulging in the flesh without consequence. And so this puts us in a rock and a hard place as Christians, doesn't it? Our our spirit-inspired good works never come to perfect completion, and nor does your fleshly lusts ever get to have their way, thankfully. So what Paul says here about this conflict and what it does to us, even though it can seem discouraging because you have to fight this battle your whole life long, yet it also, in a sense, gives you comfort, doesn't it? Because Paul is perfectly describing our experience day in and day out as believers, isn't he? However, while it's normal to experience this conflict, it shouldn't lead us into complacency. And too often we do that, don't we? Uh, We say, oh well, I'm I'm justified by faith alone and and a struggle with sin, I guess, is normal, so I'm just not really going to put up a fight. In fact, my lack of fighting and striving against my sin um, is sort of in line with being justified by faith alone since faith is, is resting and not working. And so I'll just use justification as an excuse to not really work at my sanctification. But that's not what Paul says here or anywhere else, is it? No, he says that we must fight and that we can be encouraged to fight because the Spirit will be victorious over the flesh. In fact, he connects this will to fight and our implied victory in the fight to the very reality of justification itself. Uh, There in verse 18 of our text, he goes on and he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So there you see that this Uh, sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit is being directly connected to the reality and to the fact that we are free from being under the law. In fact, Paul implies that if we are led by the Spirit or that if we are mastered by the Spirit, then that shows us that we are indeed those who have been justified before the law, so that we no longer are under its condemnation. In other words, he's saying that uh, sanctification in the Spirit flows from and points back to the definitive reality of justification. Those who are sanctified have been justified. They are not under the law. And this fits right in with the logic of the book of Galatians and the book of Romans. We are set free from the condemnation of the law by faith in Jesus Christ. And note that when Paul refers to the works of the law and to being under the law here, that's really a shorthand reference to being under the law as a covenant of works. Again, the the covenant of works was the arrangement where eternal blessedness and life in the Spirit uh, was, was promised to Adam on condition of Adam's perfect and perpetual obedience. And as we all know, Adam broke the covenant of works. And so attaining these things, eternal life and life in the Spirit, attaining these things by our works just isn't possible anymore. However, the the, the Pharisees and the Judaizers whom Paul is refuting both here in Galatians and in Romans, uh, they didn't get that memo. They still thought that eternal blessedness and life in the Spirit was something that is earned in part. And so as Paul has been responding to these errors, he has been emphasizing the fact that Christ alone can give us the Holy Spirit and that Christ alone gives us eternal blessedness because He alone has fully fulfilled the covenant of works in our place. And as he's made clear repeatedly through his writings, we receive Christ and His benefits, including the Holy Spirit, By faith alone. And so when Paul says here that if you are led by the Spirit, then you are not under the law. What he's saying is that you are manifesting the fact that you are in Christ and thus not under the law. And this should be a great encouragement 
to you as you wrestle through and pursue your sanctification. You see, even though you cannot do as you wish, as Paul says, even though your repentance and your new obedience and your positive life changes are never going to be as good as you would hope for, perfect and perpetual obedience is no longer what's required of you in order to possess the Spirit and eternal life. In fact, you will often fail miserably at your sanctification and even backslide at times. However, in those moments when you see that you do not do as you wish, when you experience things like overwhelming temptation and the guilt of sin, you need to remember that you are still in the Spirit and that you aren't under the condemnation of the law. You see, what sin does is it tries to lure us to just give up and give in, since we can never be perfect anyways. In other words, because our desire for good works can't come to completion, sin tells us to just give in and let our fleshly lusts come to completion. But again, our standard is no longer sinless perfection. Sure, in our fallen state, in our natural union with Adam, it's futile to keep the law and try to keep the law in order to attain eternal life. But again, that's, that's not our goal anymore, is it? No, in our sanctification, we pursue holiness because we already have eternal life. So the argument of sin, the argument of the accuser, that since we aren't perfect and since it's always going to be a battle, we may as well just give up because we're not going to measure up. This is silenced by this reality that Paul reiterates here, that we are not under the law. Christ perfectly kept the law and we are in Him by faith. So we can be encouraged when we stumble and fall. We can be encouraged to continue to pick up and continue pressing on. We are no longer under the law and the Spirit won't abandon us, as we sang in Psalm 139. In fact, not only will the Spirit not abandon us, but Paul also implies that the Spirit can overcome the flesh. Look back there at verse 16 with me in light of all of this. He says there, I say, then walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And you'll notice that the structure here parallels what was just said down in verse 18. He says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law in verse 18. However, here in verse 16, he opens up by commanding us to walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. In other words, verse 18 is talking about what's objectively true of us, uh, that if we have faith and are pursuing sanctification, that that, that shows us uh, that we have already been justified before the law. But here in verse 16, he is commanding us to pursue such a life to pursue life in the Spirit. And that's precisely what a life of sanctification is. It's a walking in step with the Spirit. Now, the concept of walking there, that was a common Jewish idiom that referred to our day-to-day -day conduct. Again, getting down to the nitty-gritty of your life. And even we speak about our life in that way, don't we? We, we? we refer to the Christian life as the Christian walk. We talk about those who walk the walk rather than just talking the talk. And you see, most Jews thought of their walk as being a walking in the law. They thought of it as a stringent obedience to the Torah, which was performed out of a life of rigorous self-discipline. It's why, for example, just north of here, the Jewish community has their ear of wire that goes around the community so that it be, can be considered one household on the Sabbath day, 
right? They are stringently trying to find ways to keep the Torah. Uh, But, of course, that's the very mentality that Paul has been arguing against here, hasn't he? We aren't under the law, and we aren't expecting to keep it perfectly in this life, nor are we seeking to keep it in our own strength. Instead, Paul here says that we are to walk in the Spirit, and that when we walk in the Spirit, by definition, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh, because again, the Spirit is stronger than the flesh. In other words, just as we aren't justified by works, so we aren't sanctified by works. Rather, we are sanctified by walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And of course, this is precisely what all of the Old Testament prophets were promising in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, that that God would pour out His Spirit upon His people and regenerate them and give them a new heart and inscribe the law upon their heart so that they would walk in it truly from the heart. So how do we do this? How do we walk in step with the Spirit? Well, again, we have to recognize that if we are united to Christ by faith, then by definition we are in the Spirit. Uh, He's the one who has given us the Spirit. Again, Christ simply means the one anointed with the Spirit. So if we wish to strengthen the work of the Spirit within us, then we need to draw near to Christ, the one who is anointed with the Spirit. We need to strengthen our faith in Christ. And of course, we strengthen our faith in Christ through the means of grace, through things like prayer, through the Word, and through the sacraments. For example, when we pray in the Spirit, seeking to bring our needs and our desires before God while seeking to commune with God, we are not only exercising and strengthening our faith in that act, But our faith is also wrapping itself around the very object that it aspires to, namely God Himself. This is why the Puritans used to call prayer a grabbing or a laying a hold of God. In prayer, we lay a hold of God. And that strengthens our faith. And it strengthens the work of the Spirit within us. So also, when we are in the Word, when we meditate upon it, when we trust in it, when we commit to obey it in every avenue of life, when we sing it even. Again, the very grounds and fuel of our faith is being increased within us. As Paul says in the book of Ephesians, we aren't to be drunk with wine, but we are to be filled with the Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. As Psalm 1 says that we considered several Weeks back, the man who is planted in the Word will not follow after sin, but will again go on to bear fruit in his life. That strengthens our faith. It increases the work of the Spirit within us when we are in the Word. And so also when we partake in the sacraments, especially when we partake in the supper, as we did last week, we are strengthening and assuring our faith. You see, faith simply unites us to Christ, the one who is anointed with the Spirit. And so as faith is increased within us, so also the Spirit is increased within us and His influence. You see, in a way, we are sanctified by faith just as we are justified by faith because both realities occur in union with Christ. And so though our sanctification can wax and wane, and though we often stumble and fall and then stand back up again, we can be encouraged that the Spirit ever abides with us to continue to strengthen us, to continue to preserve us, and to help us overcome the lust of the flesh. The Spirit is on our side and He is stronger than our flesh. Again, to return to our prior analogy, the oil of the Spirit will always come out on top of the filthy water of the flesh, even if it gets jostled around at times and reburied 
by our backsliding at, at times. Eventually it will come out on top again. However, this doesn't negate the reality that we need to actively mortify the flesh as we then walk in step with the Spirit. And that is implied at the end of verse 16 where Paul says, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, when Paul says this, uh, this does appear to be a future indicative statement more than a mere command. That is, uh, Paul is saying that as we walk in the Spirit, uh, then in the future we shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Um, how, however, as we're going to see tonight, he does command us to repent of certain behaviors here. Look down uh, at verse 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. In fact, in the book of Romans, Paul makes a very similar statement as here when he commands Christians uh, to mortify the flesh. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 13, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul says that if we consistently live according to the flesh, that we will die. That is, if, if we live a life committed to sin and to unbelief and to autonomy from God, that we will die. But that if by the Spirit, which is the gift of Christ, we put to death the deeds of the body, then we will live. That fits right in with what we've seen here in Galatians 5. Walk according to the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Uh, But Paul says there in Romans more directly, that we are to actively put to death the deeds of the body. So in closing then, what does it mean to actively put to death the deeds of the body? And how does this fit in with the rhythm of walking in step with the Spirit? Well, to put to death the deeds of the body, or to mortify the flesh really involves two things. It involves a life of consistently repenting for sin, and it involves a life of consistently amputating sin. Now, when it comes to repentance, we have to recognize that repentance is more than just feeling bad for sin. It's more than just a sense of uh, contrition for having done some bad things. Instead, biblical repentance is a hating and fleeing from sin, not because of what sin does, though what it does to us and to others is certainly awful, but we are to repent because of what sin is, an an offense against the holiness of God. And repentance isn't so much a hatred and a fleeing from sin out in the world, as much as it is a hatred and a fleeing from sin within ourselves. It's an act of the mind. It's an act of the affections. It's an act of the will where we commit to breaking from certain desires and impulses so that even when they arise within us, we will not fulfill them, as Paul says in verse 16. So repentance requires a knowledge of God's law. It requires a self-examination, a a reflective knowledge of ourselves, along with a consistent life of prayer. After all, if we are to repent before God, if that's what repentance is, we need to do so in prayer. And so this should be a regular practice of ours. You should be regularly taking inventory. You should be examining yourself daily before the holy law of God and in your prayers, praying confession, prayers of confession and repentance while resting in God's grace. So that is repentance and the practice of it. What then of the amputation of sin? We are to repent of sin and we are also to amputate sin. What does that mean? 
Well, that term comes from where Jesus told the disciples that if your eye causes you to sin, to pluck it out, or that if your hand causes you to sin, to cut it off. Now, as virtually all commentators say, Jesus is not to be taken literally there. We aren't to literally gouge out our eyes, and we aren't to literally be chopping off our hands and feet. Uh, Rather, when he says that, uh, what that is, is it's what we call prophetic hyperbole. Jesus is telling us to cut off the occasion of sin, or to cut off the means through which we easily fall into sin. And he's doing that by this strong analogy. In other words, uh, the amputation of sin requires us to really watch how we interact with the world around us. It requires us to be careful with what we watch, to be careful with what we listen to, to be careful with whom we associate with. Again, think about Psalm 1. And to be careful with what sorts of social media that we engage with. You see, we all need to take inventory of our besetting sins or those sins that we consistently struggle with. And we need to identify the entrance points of these things and we need to be ready to cut them off. This is, again, all too often a neglected practice in our churches. As American Christians, we think that we should just be able to do as we please in the name of Christian freedom. We don't want to be legalists after all, right? And while our flesh may revolt against this idea, and again, while it might seem to be legalistic to us because of our cultural proclivities, often when we cut certain things off or take breaks from certain things, on the other side of that, we find ourselves being much better off, don't we? So, brothers and sisters, take inventory And be ready to cut certain things off if you need to. So we are to mortify the flesh by living a life of consistent repentance. And we are to mortify the flesh by engaging in the amputation of sin in our lives. And cutting off the entrance points of sin in our lives. And this requires a lot of work, doesn't it? And so how does that fit in then with being saved by grace alone through faith alone? How does this fit in with the idea that the Christian life is all of grace? Well, it fits in because as we saw, neither our justification nor our sanctification comes about through the works of the flesh. It all comes through faith in Jesus Christ. However, we still have that flesh to contend with, don't we? And so as we trust in Christ alone, and as we marinate in the means of grace, We must likewise mortify the flesh. Think of it like weeds growing up in a beautiful tulip garden. And I'm using my analogy there purposefully. Of course, tulip is the acronym for uh, sovereign grace. Think about mortifying the flesh like weeding a beautiful tulip garden. Weeding the tulips doesn't add to the tulips. It doesn't cause the tulips to be what they are. It simply allows them to become visible and to flourish. And the same goes with the mortification of our flesh and the work of the Spirit within us. Mortifying the flesh doesn't add to the work of the Spirit within us, nor does it cause the work of the Spirit within us. It simply makes the work of the Spirit more visible within us so that it can flourish and be enjoyed. In fact, Owen, in his famous treatise, The Mortification of Sin, says that, quote, the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on the mortification of the deeds of the flesh. Note, he doesn't say that sin is to be eliminated. After all, we can never be sinless in this life. Nor does he say that uh, we need to do this in order to earn the Spirit's work within us. He merely says that the flesh is to be mortified so that we can enjoy the Spirit's work within us. It's not about perfection. It's about subjection. The flesh needs to be subject to the Spirit. In other words, going back to the analogy of the water and oil, the oil of the Spirit needs to subdue the filthy water of the flesh in order for us to truly enjoy the new life that we have in Christ. 
And as Paul implies here, this can happen and it will happen as we commit ourselves to living a life in step with the Spirit of Christ. And we're going to look further at this this evening as we examine what Paul says about uh, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit and how we are to bear the latter while denying the former. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for giving us your Spirit. We thank you for regenerating us and for bringing us to faith so that we might know that we are loved by you in Christ, so that we might grab a hold of Christ by faith and rest in him and in his finished work. And we thank you for that assurance that we have in him that we are not guilty and that we are no longer under the condemnation of the law. Lord, we pray that you would continue to strengthen your Spirit's work within us. We pray that daily we would be confessing our sins and mortifying the flesh, cutting off the occasions of sin in our lives. And we pray that daily that we would be mortifying the flesh while also marinating in the means of grace. We pray, God, that we would be a people of prayer. We pray that we would be a people who are in your word. And we pray that through these means that you would strengthen your spirit's work within us. And we pray that our faith would be strengthened and our desire for obedience strengthened so that we might glorify you throughout this life and have the victory in this battle that we are called to against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we do pray for our children. We pray for any who may be here in our midst that are in an unconverted state, that are in the flesh. We pray that uh, the word that has been preached would be planted in their heart, and we pray that your spirit would bring them new life through the gospel by the means of the word, that they too might rest in Christ and enter into this warfare with us as we strive together for holiness. Lord, we pray that you'd work these things within us and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.